Hi, I'm Malcolm Hawker, and this is the CDO Matters Podcast, the show where I dig deep into the strategic insights, best practices, and practical recommendations that modern data leaders need to help their organizations become truly data-driven. Tune in for thought-provoking discussions with data, IT, and business leaders to learn about the CDO matters that are top of mind for today's chief data officers. Good morning, everybody. I should also say good evening or afternoon because we do certainly record these. I'm Malcolm Hawker, the head of data strategy with Prophecy Software and your host for the CDO Matters live edition of the podcast. And there he is. AirPods working? Yep, AirPods are working. Well, that's actually better audio quality. Awesome. Great yeah, Good stuff. So I was just doing, I was just doing my usual uh, intro. Happy Friday to everybody. We record these on Friday. Typically, we do these uh, live versions of CDO Matters the last Friday of every month. But because the, the holidays are right around the corner, we're doing it uh, on, on the 15th. I'm beyond thrilled uh, to be joined by Eric Zwiefel, the CDAO of Microsoft for the Americas, on today's episode. Eric, welcome. Thank you very much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Uh, we're, we're thrilled that you're here. Uh, we're going to have a good conversation over the next uh, hour. Uh, Eric and I were just talking about uh, upcoming holidays here in, in, in the U.S. Um, so happy holidays to, to everybody. I hope, I hope everybody gets to spend some time with family and friends. Uh, what are you, big plans? Are you staying, are you staying home? Or are you traveling? Yep, staying home. Uh, just kind of, yeah, being, have happy time with the big fam. Yeah, that, that's that's that, that's awesome. I will be traveling north in my homeland in Canada, uh, Edmonton, Alberta. Hopefully, fingers crossed, the weather holds. Uh, but apparently, El Nino has been making it rather bearable this year. So, yeah. so anyway, yeah. Enough with the frivolities in the weather chat. I mean, you can do that with anybody. Anybody could have be having. But 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 since I have you here, let's 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 dive into it again. Thank you so much, Eric. Um, I think I met you. I don't know where I met you for the first time. Probably CDOIQ two years ago is my guess, maybe. But we had a chance to have a dinner. Where were we? We Boston? Yeah, yeah. I think that was Boston. Yep. Yeah, at, at the at the last CDOIQ conference, uh, we had a wonderful dinner in Boston. Had like yeah. a, a great long chat. I got a chance to know you, uh, which which was fantastic. We lot we share a lot of similar views. We've got a, a passion for for data and analytics, quite obviously. Looking forward to picking your brain in a little more detail here today. Welcome to everybody. Um, thank you for joining. Um, let's 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 dive into it. Everybody wants to talk about AI, of course. Yep. Um, it's been <laughs> obviously kind of like the number one topic this this year. I go to a lot of industry events. People are talking about it. Absolutely. One of the things, Eric, I'm I'm hearing a lot of data leaders express concern about the the idea of being let's just call it AI ready, becoming more yeah. AI ready. In your conversations with your clients, um, I imagine you're hearing the same. And if you are, what, what are you telling them? What, what do you say? How do you get yeah. more AI ready? Oh, great question. For, for me, it comes back to the same things that we've been talking about for years. Like you need to govern your data. You need to have good policies. You need to have, you know, know who accesses and who can access. MDM is very important. Data quality is very important and so on. You know, we say that Data is the fuel that powers AI, whether you're training a model or more likely using the reg pattern. Either way, you need to have to uh, be able to get access to the right data at the right time. And then on top of that is this extra layer of you need to think responsible AI in ways that maybe we haven't before for many organizations. And we need to think about how is this going to play out and uh, work that into our overall governance posture. So, so, so you mentioned something there called a rag pattern. Tell, tell us a little bit more what that actually means. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I don't know the exact, I believe that's retrieve, augment, and generate. Is yes, the, I think uh, you're right. Thank you. And I, I, I always worry about, is it retrieval or retrieve, augmentation? I, so I use anyway. them interchangeably, but yeah. Yeah. So essentially the rag pattern is I don't need to train a custom large language model. Instead, the way that I think about it, and this is an overly simplistic view, 
I use the large language model as almost like a reasoning and language center of the brain. And when a user asks a question, um, like if we take Bing chat, for instance, if I ask, what's a good gift to get a eight-year-old child? Um, there's an orchestration layer that will go run a web query, get those results back, and then pass the results and the question back to the LLM to say, you know, look at all of these results and answer this question for Eric on what he should buy his son and then generates that response. So that's essentially distilled down that rag pattern is just retrieving data, giving it back to the LLM and answering the questions that way. So you don't have to have a custom trained model. So that important, that, that bit there is, is really important, which is the retrieval part, which is getting data to act in essence. What I'm hearing is kind of a fact set. A known fact set. If if these things are yep. my constraints, if these things are known to be true, then draw a conclusion based off of this. Is that is it? Do you, do you agree with what I just said? Yep, absolutely. And and we've seen instances where that can um, reduce. You know, we've heard a lot about hallucinations with these LLMs. Yep. This can reduce those hallucinations because part of your meta prompt, what you're instructing the LLM is don't answer outside of what is in these documents. And so right. it can start to reduce the hallucination. So for those listening, this is where you may have heard, you may have heard this concept of something called a vector database, yep. which is, which is, can be very effective here. A good friend of mine named Juan Sequeda is, is looking at the use of graph databases as it, to, to help fuel these things as well. So whether it is a snippet of text, whether it's a URL, whether it's a vector, whether it's a graph, what, you, what you're basically doing is telling an LLM, giving it constraints and giving it facts and say, and say do something with this. Okay. Yep, absolutely. That's, that's, that's really, really insightful because one of the ways that I, I'm starting to get attracted to the idea, I'd love your idea. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. I'm starting to get attracted to the idea as, of the LLM as an operating system. I mean, I know that's a really yes. drastic simplification here, but but that's I'm kind of starting to get attracted to that to the LLM as an OS. What what do you when you hear that? How do you react? Uh, I absolutely agree with you. I think we're seeing that with you know both OpenAI and then Microsoft uh, 365 Copilot having the idea of add-ons, and I think these LLMs become like a new OS, like you're saying. And these add-ons become like the new apps. Um, and it's, you know, allowing this large LLM to choose which add-on to use as it works through that rag pattern. So we've seen things like OpenTable announcing add-ons and so on. Yeah. Well, I, I think I think what's interesting here is that you're you're kind of God, I'm showing my age. Um, I, re I remember the early days of the internet, believe it or not. And I'm seeing a lot of similarities here where there was a time when you had to hand key an IP address into a browser window, right? Mm -hmm. and, and, and to make sure that you ended up where you wanted to go. Um, and, I, and I'm seeing something similar here where it's like, well, we started with this just kind of this raw operating system and, and we were kind of, and it had a chatbot interface, which was great, natural language interface, which was fantastic. And then data people started to figure out, okay, well, wait a minute, I've got all of this data in, is sitting in my world in rows and columns, right? And, and how do I kind of inject mm -hmm. that into the flow? Start talking about rag patterns. And now where I see things going, I'd love your perspective on, uh, on this, is maybe some idea of maybe like, a, like an app. You use, you use the phrase an app. I love that, by the way. But where the app is maybe more like a smart agent that is actually interacting with people. Do you, like, it looks like mm -hmm. Microsoft is, is really kind of betting on that. Is, is agreed? Yeah, absolutely. I think that is the future of kind of technology is moving away from this app to more of this smart assistant. Um, you may hear Satya talk to like the era of co-pilots or the age of co-pilots. And work. really, that's where we see kind of LLMs playing a role right now is as a co-pilot for us as we are working through. And a lot of people are excited about that uh, in terms of I would love a co-pilot to help me with my day and, and so on. But um, you, you mentioned the dawn of the internet. And that's something I often bring up is that's, mm. that's where we are at right now when it comes to AI. 
it, we're at that stage, the dawn of the internet. We see this is going to have big implications. And I don't think it's hyperbole to say this is going to change every interaction, every user experience that we have. We just don't know how yet because we're at the early stages, the dawn right. of the internet. Right. Well, it's, it's, it's interesting. Um, I, I, I think that is playing out before our, our very eyes and people are starting to answer questions kind of as, as, as we go. Um, one of the things that I find, I love the co-pilot metaphor. Um, and, and one of the, the things that not, not to be, um, overly flowery, um, uh, about Microsoft, although I, I can be, uh, cause I, I think they're really ahead of the curve when it comes to data infrastructure and, and data management in, in the cloud. And we'll talk about that in a, in, in a little bit. Yeah. But one of the things that I like is that the copilot metaphor can be applied in so many different applications that we use all day, every day. Yep. Right. Like historically, you know, data science, AI, that, that happened over there. And it was the really, really smart people that got paid a lot of money to build custom models to, that did propensity and did all of this really cool stuff. And don't get me wrong and recommend the next song that I heard on my playlist and all that stuff. Really cool. Don't get me wrong. But it was this kind of this other world. But what I'm seeing now is through these co-pilots and the use of LLMs is that AI, anybody can be a data analyst now. Yeah. And, and, and I could be using, I could just be looking at a Power BI dashboard and make that a highly interactive experience, which is like incredibly valuable. So yeah, yeah I, I love the, I love the co-pilot metaphor. So getting back to AI readiness. Yeah. What you, what you said was, Hey, let's not forget kind of the basics, the, the, the blocking and Absolutely. tackling. Right? Let's not forget security and access. Let's not forget MDM. Let's not forget data quality. I, I think that is incredibly relevant when we start talking about these rag patterns, right? Because mm -hmm. if you are telling the LLM, hey, these I know these things to be true, and they're not, yep. that could be a problem, <laughs> right? That Absolutely. Is, that is the old and tried and true metaphor of of garbage in and, and, and garbage out. Yep. Um, different story if you're training LLMs, but most people won't be. I mean, you 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 mentioned right. that. I mean, like we're talking millions and millions and millions to train an, an LLM, and and do you see them becoming? I, I I hate to use the word commoditized, but it seems like they all largely kind of work the same way. Do you agree? To some extent, yeah, I believe that um, we will see that kind of convergence and commoditization of these LLMs. And I do think there there may be times where some folks or some companies will need to fine tune an LLM. And that won't be a total train from the beginning. But this is more about how do I help the LLM not memorize facts about my company? I can have the rag pattern to get the facts. Like you said, this is the fact set. But more of, can I start to fine tune the LLM so it understands the nomenclature that we use, can help sound like our company, and, and just fine tune to be more domain specific in how it interacts with that fact set. But um, yeah, I absolutely think that uh, for the most part, we will head towards um, these LLMs will be, you know, you may fine tune them, but we're seeing a lot of times where you don't need to, and you're still getting really good results. You, you raised something there that is very important, which, which I don't think we, we talk about enough, um, which is this distinction between training and fine tuning, mm -hmm. right? Tra training is like, go figure out the internet. Yep. <laughs> right. Like, and, and, and the one example that I gave, cause it's public knowledge, cause it's open source is, is Llama, one of their more simple, models is only mm -hmm. only 70 billion parameters gpt4 yep. i think at seven 700 billion parameters which is just like yep. mind-boggling but Absolutely. llama had llama had 70 billion parameters and they published that it took six thousand gpus running for 12 weeks straight right yes. that's the, that's the training process so you can put you can times that by 10 for 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 OpenAI yep. in their latest version, right? And oh, and by the way, that doing that the twelve the six thousand GPUs for twelve weeks straight for for Llama was a two million dollar investment. So again, I think you could yep. put a zero on it, at the minimum for seven hundred billion parameter model at a minimum. Yep, that would be my guess. Yeah. Then there's fine tuning, and that's what you just talked about, which is it, which is a different thing, which is again loading known facts 
generally in, a, in, in the form of a question and an answer into an LLM mm -hmm. to help it bet to the machine learning part of it to say, okay, this is true and this is true and this is true. Most people are not going to be doing the training stuff. They may be doing the fine tuning. I think right. that's where, do, do you see that where things evolving from more kind of domain kind of expertise? Like fine tuning to be like a like you know maybe a medical domain or a supply chain domain is that kind of how you see fine tuning playing in? Yes, I absolutely think so. And, and uh, you know, while you were talking, an analogy occurred to me. So this is the first time I'm using it. So if it doesn't play out, uh, bear with me. But you know, training a model is like uh, raising a baby all the way to adulthood. You know, you have to put in a lot of things to get there. Whereas fine tuning a model is more like um, onboarding them into your company. They already know a bunch of stuff and you're just teaching them, here's how we do it here. Yeah. So I don't know, tell me, does that analogy play out? For no, you? I like, I like, I like it. I mean, like onboarding to a domain or to your yeah. company, right? And that, that's the intersection early on when, when everybody was still kind of learning how these things work, I was hearing from CDOs over and over and over again. Um, we can't train, you know, we can't, we, our data is in such a bad state that we can't use it to train an LLM. And you're never probably going to need to train an LLM. The fine tuning part, onboarding, I, I like that. You could take your internal data. Well, but here's the question. Fine tuning generally relies on full, like on text, right? Like, like written text, like verbiage and most yep. information. Well, I guess this isn't true because there's a lot of unstructured data floating around out there. But a lot of the good stuff is sitting in rows and columns. What's the what's the what's the bridge there? Do you see do you see a future where maybe we're are kind of my database methodologies change in the future where it's less about rows and columns or what's what's the bridge to go? Because because all of these the AI is being trained on net on, on natural language text it's on 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 text and we're yep. storing in rows and columns. I, I just had this like this this synapse fire in my brain. It's like oh wait a minute maybe maybe we need to change how the data is being yeah. stored. I don't know. Does this yeah, make any sense? Yeah, <laughs> Ab absolutely makes sense. Um, and I, I think uh, two things about that. The first is, again, the fine tuning for me is not about trying to get it to memorize my company facts. So I don't need to worry as much about like, here's all of the sales data I had since 2015 and make sure that gets fine tuned into LLM. It's more about the language that we use. And you you may fine tune it to say, you know, here are the column names that we use and so on, mm -hmm. so that it helps the rag pattern be more efficient and get the data faster. And you still rely on the rag pattern to get the up-to-date facts. Uh, well, I think but this I is do, why you know, we have seen. Go ahead. Sorry, my apologies. I was going to say, no, no worries. We have seen taking, you know, text-based data, or excuse me, row and column-based data and putting it in like a CSV type format. And the LLMs can still do kind of reasoning over that CSV type format. So we can inject the text that way or mark down or however you want to inject it. Mm -hmm. So there are ways to do it. But uh, yeah, I just think that the rag pattern is more about, you know, let's make sure my data estate is in order and I can get access to those facts quickly. And I may fine tune the model to make it more efficient to get access to those. But I may not need to fine tune it and still be able to do that. I think this is one of the reasons why maybe graph uh, can be one of the effective ways of, 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 of implementing these rag patterns because it contains context yep. that may not be there in the rows and columns, right? The context in rows and columns happens in the joins. Um, whereas in a graph, it's, it's there in the, in the relationships between the nodes. Anyway, we're, we're nerding out. Let's, let's pull up. Totally. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> All right, getting getting this will be probably the last question about AI because I I know people want to talk. We just we just had uh people asking, hey, are you gonna talk about the fabric too? Uh we yeah. most certainly are gonna talk about the fabric. Um thank you, thank you, Marcus, for asking the question. We'll, we'll we'll talk about that. And thank you everybody everybody for joining. By the way, you can ask questions. Um but last question around um AI. There's a lot of CDOs out there who by my estimation, by some of the research I've done, there's about, I, I'm guessing about 50% of companies have some sort of data science function. Maybe that's in a formal kind of CDO organization, or maybe it's within a line of business. But there's a good 50% of companies out there that, that to a certain degree, I think you could say we're caught a little flat-footed 
right? Yeah. And 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 are, are playing catch up when it comes to 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 open AI and, and Gen L, Gen AI and and LLMs. What what would you say to those CDOs who who are under pressure from a board of directors to have an AI story to tell? What what would you recommend they do? Yeah, absolutely. It reminds me of a discussion I was having with a CDO and asked, you know, what's the the hardest part for you about kind of the AI this period of AI? And they said that my board knows it exists. Um, <laughs> so, <yeah. laughs> Unlike BI in the past, like nobody knew. Like now, now they all know. Oh they God, all yeah. know it's there. They're expecting a lot from it, and maybe not reality from it too. There's a lot of hype around this. But I would say for those CDOs that are facing that pressure, um, there are ways that you can build a kind of uh, maybe low risk, internally facing um, AI project. So you can start to demonstrate progress to your board, show that you know we're experimenting with this, we're moving forward with this. We're trying to do that mindfully and responsibly by starting off on like a employee Q&A chatbot or benefits or something to that effect. Um, so you could do that with your data sets that um, maybe they're not in the state that you want them to be in yet, but you can still start to show progress to your board. Meanwhile, looking at those kind of Horizon 3 and Horizon 2 type projects, you can start to lay the foundation and show the board that in order to get there, this is where we want to go but we're going to need to lay some data management foundations or consolidate our data, um, MDM and so on. Yeah, I, I, I love it. So what I heard was build in essence, I'm paraphrasing you, build in essence some form of an AI roadmap as a part mm -hmm. of, I would assume, a broader data strategy. And if you Absolutely, don't have one, yeah. you should probably have one. Um, but build out an AI roadmap, but start on some of the low-hanging fruit. What, what, what I heard you say is that there are more than likely, I'm putting words in your mouth, but what I heard you say is that there are more than likely use cases where you can be using AI now. Agree? Absolutely, yes. Yeah. Yep, I absolutely agree. Whether that is an online chat agent, whether that is something else, whether that is a copilot. I don't know a lot of software development companies that aren't using copilot now. I mean, like the stuff through GitHub right. is unbelievable. GitLab is unbelievable. Um, but find a way to, to leverage that now. And there are, you know, probably use cases that are less, it's the right way to say this, less susceptible, for lack of a better word, yeah. to some of the con concerns you may have around AI ethics or hallucinations or anything else. Awesome. Absolutely. Yep. Awesome. Where do you, okay, I lied. One more AI question. <laughs> to the degree that you have magic forward looking glasses, um, I, I like to pull mine out of my back pocket and put on my magic forward. Yeah. Where, where, do you, where do you see things going? Things are moving so fast, right? Um, I, I'm, I've been blown away by the pace of innovation here. So I know this is a really, really difficult question to answer, but through the lens of kind of some of the classic data management stuff that we, that we just talked about, the things you got to get right, right, to become a little more AI ready, where, where do you see things unfolding in the next 12 months? Do you, do you do you, do you see, I mean, we've been talking a lot about data catalogs, right? Microsoft's got a yep. solution in purview. We've been talking a lot about governance and ethics. We've been talking about, where do you see things kind of unfolding in the next year? Ooh, that is a really tough question because, like you said, it's moving so fast. And we're finding these nascent capabilities in these LLMs. And even as we start to add things like vision. Um, oh, wow. Yeah. That adds a whole other layer of like, wow, where is this heading? Um, I think you will see more and more when it comes to like your core data management capabilities, trying to leverage AI to help out in those areas, maybe in ways that um, we haven't been able to do fully before, but now we can tweak that. And so you might see things like uh, data quality tools start to leverage AI more and more to help find out the data quality, find these data quality issues for you. Your data catalog might get more efficient in suggesting like, here are some business glossary terms that we think you may have missed. Consider adding these. Or yeah. 
we are inferring from the name of this column that this is the data that is included in that and a description of that data. So I think we'll start to see those tools built more and more into those core data management functionality. Couldn't, couldn't agree more, um, you know, to the degree that I, that I can put on my forward-looking glasses. You know, I, I think you're absolutely right. I, I, I can tell you that at Prophecy, we're certainly looking at doing the exact same thing. How do we integrate some of these capabilities beyond what we've already done? And Rahul, you asked the question about uh, how does Prophecy leverage OpenAI? We, we, we do in our last release. We, uh, we released some capabilities to allow for some data quality use cases. Uh, and we see more of these unfolding in the future, particularly around administration. Things like data modeling, perhaps. Things like in the, in the MDM world, entity resolution, suggesting potential matches, right? Where in the past, humans were the ones that were making all the decisions about, you know, how do I model a, a data? What matters? What's master data? What's not master data? What's data that's being widely shared versus not? And frankly, a lot of the answers on the human side were based on assumptions that may not necessarily always be true. Right. Um, so so I, I think data management professionals, if you're not there already, need to start to warm to the idea that, hey, this AI can actually help us be more AI ready. I know that sounds a little... <laughs> like, what do you mean? Right? Yeah, the like building's building meta. the building. Yeah, yeah the little... machines building the machines. Absolutely. Yeah, it's a little, it's a little meta. But 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 that's what you I'm paraphrasing you. That's but that's kind of what you just said, and I I totally yep. agree. Where where can you leverage some of these tools to accelerate data quality use cases? To accelerate things like understanding you know the state of your data ecosystem, what's master, what's not, how to best match, on and on and on. So love it. It's great yeah. stuff. Um, and if you do have more questions, and if you're asking them through LinkedIn, we don't get to them today. I promise I will follow up. Um, probably later on this afternoon or maybe over the weekend. So if we don't get to your question, you ask one, I'll make sure that I do follow up. Let's, let's transition. Let's talk about one of my favorite topics. Um, the, 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 I will call it the data fabric. Now I know that Microsoft has a branded version. It's the Microsoft fabric and we can draw a distinction yep. here. Um, I was talking about data fabrics two years ago, th three years ago when I was at Gartner. Um, right. and I'll be honest, Eric, at, at the time I was a little bit of a contrarian because I didn't think that the technology had really kind of got there yet. Yeah. Um, but in the last year and a half, I've completely made a, a pivot. Um, and, and now I, I see, I see the light and there's like an aha, particularly yeah. with the explosion of AI. How would you explain it, take kind of an elevator pitch approach maybe or 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 kind of value prop approach how would you explain it uh, uh, the let's just stick with the microsoft fabric how would you explain that to in layman's terms to somebody what's what's the value there what is the microsoft fabric and why yeah so for me microsoft fabric starts with a foundation of what we call one lake which is imagine one drive for your data lake house, where I can start to have, I don't need to worry about storage accounts or provisioning things. I can just start to have my data put into an area where anyone in my company can access it. And then it standardizes on the um, Delta Lake format for storing tabular data. And we have rewritten our engines like SQL and so on. Um, or the SQL data warehouse to read and write from that uh, Delta Lake format. And now we add on top of that the compute, which we've made more serverless, where you don't have to worry about, you know, I want to provision this Spark cluster here and I want to provision this data warehouse here. Instead, I say I have a fabric capacity pool that I can draw from. And individuals can go in and leverage the different tool sets that they want to. And so you can have someone running Power BI reports against a Delta Lake table at the same time as someone else is running SQL warehousing. At the same time, someone else is writing through Spark or streaming into this table, all happening at the same time against the same data set. And just making it, you know, everyone is operating on the same one copy of the data. And so that's, for me, the, the quick elevator pitch of what it is. So it's just ease of use. It becomes 
uh, just kind of across everything you do, it's easy to use and I can get out of the business of managing servers and so on. Is it correct to say that it's this kind of hyper virtualization layer? Would you, would you call it a virtualization layer? Or is that an oversimplification? That's a great question. Uh, I don't think that I would use that term virtualization okay. layer, but I can see where it might be applicable. Uh, but I think it's more just taking a uh, serverless model um, and applying it to this. And then all of these, and the reason I say virtualization, because when I think virtualization, to me, at some point, there's some sort of translation that's going on between a language to another mm. language or you know something like that. Here, I think it's just more about having the capacity and then running individual and getting people out of that management area. So more of a SaaS-based model than a virtualization-based. Okay. Fair enough, because virtualization doesn't for a specific technology. And okay, I, I, I get it. One of the things that kind of and, and again, I'm going to nerd out a little bit here. Yeah. One of the things that blew me away in one of the demos that I saw early after the release of the, the fabric was, in essence, and I'm, I'm going to kind of dumb it, dumb it down because I need to do that for me to understand it, um, was, in this case, it was a Microsoft architect, but it could have been anybody, that was executing um, SQL queries against a native graph store. Of course, it wasn't native graph. It was Parquet. Data uh, mm -hmm. Delta Lake, but but the but the data was graph. Its raw form was was graph that had been, but had been brought into the one lake, and I can write any query against it. Right? I could I could and to your point, mm -hmm. I could ex execute a Spark workload against it. I could run a SQL query against it. I could run GraphQL against it. It doesn't it doesn't matter. It all just works. And you're and you're yep. nodding. And then and then when I think about that, and and I think about it a little bit more. And then I think about it a little bit more. It, it seems to me like, in many ways, that some of the Microsoft, what Microsoft has done here is really kind of distilled away to a certain degree some of the differences that exist across database management systems. Okay, you agree, right? So it could be yes. Graph, it, it, it could be Cassandra, it, it could be any whatever, it doesn't matter. Right, that that if I know Basic SQL, or even if I know Power, just I logged into Power BI, it doesn't matter. I, I can I can access that data in whatever format it's in. Yes. Yes, we would bring it down and essentially put it into that Delta Lake format, yeah. and then yeah. standardize on that. So you abstract away these different proprietary data storage layers, and therefore it makes the data much more interoperable. Is what I hear you saying. Yes. Well, interoperability is, is key, right? Yep. But then when I think about these is like, we've, we've been holding on to this idea forever and ever and ever that use case defined storage pattern, right? Yep. That you, you had an analytics use case and, and largely, I'm just going to split it into two operational versus analytical, but you had an analytical use case. Right. And um, and that that inferred a storage pattern of blah, right, mm -hmm. right. Um, it, it inferred a data warehouse, right, like some sort of data yep. warehouse, right. And and then there was a different, you know, <clears throat> I I don't know what I don't know yet, right. I I I need to handle a lot of data. Well, that was kind of like the data lake. Then you've got operational yep. data stores out there that could even be like like a Salesforce or like like object based. You had kind of like use case was def was was informing management of the data, how it was actually managed. And then I think about the, the the Microsoft Fabric and I was like, okay, all of those differences have kind of been marginalized. I don't know if that's the right mm -hmm. word. And maybe this is a yeah, wild I, question. This is a wild yeah, question. Was, Do you see? Go ahead. I was just going to say, you know, I, I think uh, I, I agree with you. And uh, right now where Fabric is set up is that analytics layer but it makes yeah. bringing data from your operational databases in a lot easier. It has things like shortcuts. Um, so if you have data stored in Amazon S3, you can add a shortcut to your one lake and then get access to it as if it were there. And then we recently announced something called mirroring where you will be able to 
take different database technologies and have, um, you know, essentially have that data available in Fabric also. Uh, well, that kind of leads me to this: the question, which is, do you do you see a future? And and this is maybe an oddball question, but where there really isn't a functional difference, or at least an operational difference between data stored for analytical purposes and data stored for operational purposes? That I have been asking myself that question a lot. Oh, good. Uh, I'm not I, crazy. Okay. No, not at all. Not at all. And I, yeah, because when we look at these operational data sets, and you, they have to have different patterns and availability. And, and like you said, you essentially infer a data storage type based on the use case. And is it read heavy? Is it write yeah. heavy? And so on. And so I'm not quite sure where we're headed there. Um, I have to be completely transparent. I have no knowledge of this yeah. on the Microsoft roadmap. So please Stay don't Safe Harbor. read into Yeah, exactly. Please don't read into Microsoft is saying this. This is just Eric. Eric's Weefold, not Microsoft Eric. Um, I am hopeful that we will get there where we start to have this kind of, if we can get the operational efficiency for our operational data stores and still being able to write and read in more of this lake house format. Um, I'm hopeful that we'll get there and that'll truly unlock this the theoretical idea of fabric that my data is always available to everyone in the organization, regardless of application or so on. Although then that gives me my own set of heartburn. Uh, now it even becomes more important to think about data governance and master data management and data quality because the faster I make my data accessible to everyone, the more I need to make sure I'm doing these checks up front. Otherwise, we could be making wrong decisions. Uh, bingo. Yes. So high risk, high reward. You basically just described MDM. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right yeah. because mdm is this very unique thing that exists at this nexus between analytical workloads and operational workloads yes and it actually does both like like unlike a lot of other things in the in the beyond analytics world that just do the reports mdm sits literally in, in the dmz between operational and analytical and the data having to be right Right, having to be trusted, consistent, accurate, curated—like that's the world of MDM. And the MDM people have known this for a long, long time. And we sit right yeah. in the middle of those two worlds. But I'm super excited about a future where maybe on the back end, the data is how it's always been. Right? Maybe yeah. it's sitting there in files-based stores. Maybe it's sitting in graphs. Who knows? Right? But that to any anything or anyone consuming it could be a could be uh, uh, an, an agent for an LLM could be an end user, could be an application, could be just a random query from somewhere. But anybody who using it is is the, uh, experiencing that same experience, right? And the speeds and the throughput are there to support it. I think that's yes. one of the one of the concerns, right? Like high yeah. read, right? Yeah, but absolutely. In, in my in my opinion, any time where it's where it's only been compute that was the the gating factor. That always goes away. Yep. I think. I, I don't know. Um, a, a kind of a, a question, more of a, more of a statement from, from Marcus. He said that the fabric separates data from compute. Do you agree? I think, I think you said that. Absolutely. And I think, you know, I got a question from a CDO once asking me, you know, why are we talking about data lake house? Like what, why is this a thing? And, you know, I walked through, you know, we had data warehousing, then we came up with Hadoop, all of these were tightly coupled, then we came up with this data lake, um, but we still had our data warehousing. So the promise of a lake house architecture is this, where I can truly get separation between my storage and compute, have the right compute for the right workload at the right time, but have my data separate. So I would absolutely agree with that. This is just a, the next step on the path we started with Hadoop um, all those years ago. Oh, Hadoop, you said the H word. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, 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 can, I can be hypercritical of Hadoop, um, well, because I spent millions on it and uh, um, <laughs> didn't quite nail down the use case. Uh, yep. But that's, I, I, many, I wasn't alone in that. that. Yeah. 
Yeah, was wasn't 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 alone. Uh, the, the joke I used to tell and still tell about Hadoop is that for a lot of companies, it was an answer desperately seeking a question. Um, <laughs> yeah, but I do agree that there that this is this is a kind of a natural evolution, right? Um, and and I think, like I said, I guess it's a question. You know, like what. For a CDO who, who's out there or a data leader who is saying, okay, this is just another shiny object, right? It's another, you, you just, you just said Hadoop, right? Um, right. this is just another Hadoop and that kind of came and went and it was a flash in the pan. This is just, what, what would you say to, to that person if they said that about the fabric? Uh, that I, A, start by saying, like, I get it. A lot of people saw these fads. Like, I get your yeah. skepticism there. I think the difference here is that, the underlying technology, we're not, you know, this idea of separating the storage and compute and then choosing the right compute is different than we had with Hadoop, where we were tightly coupled. You had to have things stored on HDFS. And if you needed more data, you had to grow your cluster, um, where really we can just start to have all of our data accessible in the one lake, regardless of where it's sitting. We can get the copies into the one lake or, you know, mirrors or shortcuts or whatever it is. And then we are not constrained by the technology on top of that. So like we saw Spark coming in on top of Hadoop clusters and then gradually, you know, moving more towards the um, where Spark is today. I think with Microsoft Fabric, we will have the ability to add new workloads in this same experience going forward. Right. Okay. So not just another shiny object. And I, I would actually, totally. I would actually, I would, I would second that. I think in many ways for, for a lot of people, um, the fabric, the fabric has been, has become a bit of a synonym for a data mesh. And, and, yeah. and I would, I, I would say that the, no, <laughs> absolutely yeah. not. Separate conversation to be had about mesh versus fabric, but these are two very, very different architectural paradigms here. A, mm -hmm. a, a data mesh would call one lake an anti-pattern. It, it would actually call it that. I don't, I don't tend to agree. Um, hub architectures work for a reason. Yep. Just ask. United Airlines or Delta Airlines. I mean, uh, you know, ask anybody who does networking for a living. Hub architectures exist for a, for a absolutely. Reason. Um, there may be promise in the road and down the road and peer to peer, but I don't think we're we're quite there yet. So, mesh, complete decentralization. Um, fabric. I would not. I would not argue as a centralized management pattern, but at the, but at the same time, it it doesn't require you to blow up your or decommission, right. I think is maybe a better word instead of decommission your, your, your data link yeah. your warehouse. So these are two very different things. Yeah. Now, the one thing I would say with Microsoft Fabric for those data mesh enthusiasts, um, we do give the option of, you know, defining data domains. So you can still have kind of that federated governance and access and all of that kind of built in. But you're using a consistent set of tools and architecture underneath. So it can, you know, absolutely still help look at your business in that mesh type way. Um, but potentially, you know, make the management of it take away some of the overhead that you might need for a full mesh implementation. Right. I'm not saying that it is mesh or isn't, you know, I'm just saying that. When I look at data architectures, all of these patterns, personally, I try not to be a purist on any of them. Let's find out what works for my company, for my use case, and use that. And if the, a pure implementation of mesh is what is needed for a particular use case, then absolutely, go, go build that implementation. Um, but I think for the majority of use cases, that's not a requirement is what I've seen. Well. And kind of your your non-purist approach, like use whatever works, love it. Um, I think actually that's the way most people think. And even the people I would argue that started, let's say, 2022 as completely having consumed all the mesh Kool-Aid um, are now to the point of being where you are. 
which mm -hmm. is, hey, this idea of domain centricity, that, that seems to work, right? That makes sense. Yep. We, 15 years ago, we called it a data mart, separate issue. Um, yep. <laughs> but this idea of domain centricity, I, I like that, right? I like giving, yep. I like giving people in sales and marketing a little more control over their lead data, for example. Yep. So I like the idea of, of domain centricity. I like the idea of having governance accountability. You could call it a product owner if you want, but I like, yep. I like those things. And then there's these other things over here, which is like, oh, wait a minute, hold on. Federated computational governance. I don't even know what that means. Sounds extremely complicated and not that practical. Maybe we should let that one go. Yeah. So I think your pragmatism is actually reflected in the pragmatism that I'm seeing in the market, which is this is a good segue away from the fabric into more just kind of general trends that we're, that we're seeing. What I'm seeing is that people, the only thing that's left of the mesh is what you just described, domain centricity and a, and a yeah. domain centric focus. A lot of the other things have just kind of gone away because they're really, really hard to implement. What are some of the other things over the last year, you know, as we come to the end of 2023? In your conversations with CDOs and others around the globe, what are some of the key things that you'll take away from 2023 other than AI? Because we already talked about that. <laughs> I was going to say, that, that's like 90% of my takeaway is everyone was talking about AI and you couldn't go to a conference without, you know, most of the agenda being about AI. But I think that's fine. I think that's where we're at. Um, I do think that, you know, one of the big things that I'm seeing when it comes to talking to CDOs is we still struggle in the data world with being able to articulate our business value and being able to reflect back to the business. Here is why you need to invest in your data. Um, you know, I, I frequently try to get people to separate the idea of data from technology. Um, I think it was uh, Tim Berners-Lee who said data is... Uh, I can't remember how he said it, so I'll paraphrase it, but data is the precious thing that will live long after the technology has gone on to something else. And so we have these data sets that last for generations in different technologies. And so I think the CDO role is about seeing data for that. It's its own thing. And the technology is just where we store it. Um, and so I think we're seeing a lot of that. Um, Shelly, I see systems come and go, but data is forever. 100, 100% agree with you. And in the modern corporation, I feel like data is the ultimate communication vehicle. That's how our sales gets to our manufacturing, gets to our shipping and so on. It's through this data. And so for me, 2023 is mostly about AI and talking about AI and how do I implement that? But continuing to struggle with the foundations um, that and figuring out how can I show value to my organization outside of AI and get the organization to invest. I don't know if you've seen that also, Malcolm. A absolutely. I mean, I was I was given the the unique honor of, of getting to travel the world this year, um, making stops in several uh, MTCs, Microsoft Technology Centers, meeting with CDOs and data leaders around the country. And yes, two things that jump out to me, what you just said. One, foundations, right? Um, blown away by how many companies, and, and, and I guess I shouldn't be, but, but, but I was, whether I was talking with people at the Gartner Data and Analytics Summer, whether I was talking to people that, at, at MTC events, doesn't matter. I was blown away by the number of companies that are like, hey, we're just beginning our journey, right? Like, our, or whether that was an MDM journey, data quality journey, for many, it was a data and analytics journey, right? Like, Absolutely. We're, and, and I was like, wow, like, A, that's amazing. I'm glad you're here. Welcome. There's resources. Yep. We, I'm here to help. Um, but that, but for those folks, it was okay. Foundations, right? How do I? Where do I start? What comes first, governance or data management? By the way, that's that's that, that's been my number one LinkedIn post this year. Has been this. I, I asked the question: What comes first, data governance or data management? That was my number one. But but that speaks to exactly what you just said, which is foundations, right? Like, how yeah. do we do this stuff? How do we get a governance program off the ground? How do we manage access and security? Like, how do we, how do we do, like, what's it, do I need a data catalog? If I implement MDM, do I need a data catalog? And all, like all these questions. So, so that was certainly some, something that I heard 
and you know thrilling to see that a lot of people are are doing this and frankly when uh when i was in london um at, at, a, at a gartner event a lot of those exact same people were saying hey we're just starting our analytics journey and we are doubling down on microsoft i heard it awesome. over and over and over and over again um which which is which is great um but to the value question why why do you uh, agreed it's it's a, it's a, it's a constant thing it, it's funny you you noted what what Shelley said about you know systems coming and going but data stays forever data people kind of actually use that as 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 one of the reasons why data doesn't have value because it's not scarce yeah right right, right? um what do you think eric is is why is this such a thing cuz i've been in this space a long time and it's still a thing right why is that 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 the 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 value problem why is that so pernicious yeah you know when i think about it um it really comes down to you know when you compare to other parts of the organization you're talking in front of the ceo it might be easy to define like hey my sales team drove x million in revenue or my operations team delivered you know x widgets in q3 and for the data team if you say you know we created X data products, tying it back to how that really impacted the business can be a little bit harder to make that leap because a lot of the things that we're doing, especially around data governance and data cataloging and so on, the impact and the value may not be intangible, like here is how we moved revenue forward. It may be more in things like, hey, when you ask a question, we can answer it a lot faster than we could before and we allow the company to be more agile. And so trying to quantify that um, can be challenging. But that's one of the reasons that I've been, you know, excited about looking at data through, you know, we have been started talking about data products. And I've still, I asked a bunch of CDOs at the CDO IQ, like, okay, what what is a data product if you had to define it? Because I think we are all operating under different definitions. And to me, what I heard boiled down to essentially, let's take a data management or data lifecycle management approach to data. And part of that will be, we don't just throw a report and forget about it. We retire things when they're done, but I'm hopeful that we'll be able to then start leveraging value if we take that approach and kind of defining it better. Here's how many people are accessing this data product. You know, it's used elsewhere and we can start to then demonstrate to our board and others that our ability to govern and um, access and have quality data helps us move faster and helps us meet our business objective. And I, I often say that, you know, at the end of the day, our goal as CDOs and as data people should not be a great data strategy. Our goal should be a great business strategy that's infused with data everywhere and that we are helping to unlock that business strategy as a result. I love it. I love it. So you talked about data products and I'm glad you did. Uh, cause to me that that's one of my key takeaways for, for 2023 for sure. Cause I heard a lot of the same feedback as well over the year. You, you talked about. I'm paraphrasing you again, but you tease the idea that maybe, maybe this focus on products could be the bridge back to the world of value realization or at least value quantification. Yeah. Cause if I think about it, if I had to sell a product and the sales, the sales of that product were what depended on whether I had food on the table or not, I would probably be really, really focused on customer success. Absolutely. Yes. Okay. We on, on this we agree. I've been having a lot of posts on LinkedIn recently on this very topic. It's it's a sticky issue for a lot of data folks. Um, when you talk about data for data products, there's a lot of kind of hand wringing online about how do you actually yeah. define it. Absolutely. How do you well? How do you define it? Yeah, like I said, so it was interesting when we asked these. Um, when I asked these CDOs, we had like not a debate, but there was an, you know, questioning each other. Well, can a mm -hmm. report be a data product or is it just a table or, you know, getting down into the nuts and bolts? 
and for me again my my definition is more of just taking a product management approach to data and if that's at the table level at the report level at the excel spreadsheet level like i don't really care what level it goes to but it's more of understanding that this product what we've put together will have a beginning a middle and an end the end is you know often really important that we need to know when it has yeah. reached end of life cycle and decommission it so we don't have um a prior organization that i was at in our data warehouse we had four different date dimension tables and i to this day i don't know what the difference was <laughs> i just know that i had to use this one or it was wrong. roman and greek right i mean that I, totally <laughs> right like or yeah yeah, and so my my guess is that it was created, and then it didn't get deprecated, and it was just kind of floating out there forever. That's so. that's uh, that's oh, that's awesome. Four different dimensions for date. Um, you you touched on something. Well, you, I'm 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 kind of moving forward. I'm I'm fast forwarding the tape here. But you, yeah. but one of the things you also just inferred with product management and product lifecycle management, um, is sunsetting products. Right. That's basically yeah. I'm, I'm paraphrasing you. But that starts to veer into as well, maybe even the idea of sustainability. I know that sustainability is near and dear to Microsoft's heart. They have a goal of of, of being uh, net, net zero. Um, I, f yeah. I forget what your Satra said. I want to say it's like super aggressive, like 2025. Um, I won't hold you. I won't hold you. But it's, yeah, like, I, it's, I, it's very aggressive. Yeah. Um, so it's it's near and dear to Microsoft. It's near and dear to everybody. But what I what I heard you say is that that taking more of a product management approach could even help address that because we got a data hoarding problem. Yep. I mean, yep, if you can absolutely. say, "Hey, this data is not being used. It's just collecting digital dust. It's never been used. It won't be used." A product manager would look at that and say, "Hey, listen, why are we paying storage and compute for this thing that is just collecting dust? Nobody's getting any value from it. Maybe we should." decommission this or archive this or go put it on on tape yep. do people still put data on tape i like just asked that re yeah i just asked that recently i can't remember who it was but they sell tape and i was like do, do people still use this He's like, oh yeah absolutely it's used all over i'm like oh got it yeah because yeah well, i mean question. like for certain yeah. use cases i think like if it if it can never ever die like truly right but like you need to keep it forever and you but you don't want to have it like sitting in your data tape I mean, that's what I used to do. I mean, when when I was running an IT function, this was a while ago. I mean, it was like throw it on the tape and stick it in the in the stores locker. Okay, yep. still being used. Um, we're down to our last three minutes. Um, I want to say thank you for everybody for attending. Thank you for the dialogue that we've got going here on our Goldcast platform. Melvin, you asked a really deep and insightful question. If you're still on the line and if you're still listening, I will follow up offline. Um, regarding to kind of the garbage in, garbage out, and does that really apply in the world of highly probabilistic AI-driven things? Um, I'll take that one offline. I've got some specific thoughts there. Great question. Um, great questions from others as well. Uh, thank you, Jennifer. Thank you, Marcus. Thank you, others, for interacting in the chat. Um, in our last two to three minutes, um, what's the best part of your job, Eric, doing what you do, working where you work? Yeah, the best part of my job is is I love working with different companies and and seeing the different problems that they have. Some that are unique to them, some that are endemic across the industry. Um, but I, I I just love it uh, to be able to see all of these different how we're all working together. And the other part that I love about just the data community is that when we go to these events or conferences, even competitors. And the data community will share like, hey, this is we ran into this problem. How'd you guys solve it? Like, it's very much, you know, we're trying to help each other and build each other up. So those would be the two favorite parts of my job is just being able to see all these differences, in different companies and work with them and help them. And then just being a part of the data community. I'm, I'm with you on that. And it's thanks to the data community that allowed me to meet you. And I'm mm -hmm. grateful for that. We actually really do have a community. I completely agree. Whether that community is expressed through LinkedIn, whether that is conferences, whether it's, it's, it, I, I really do feel it. It's actually quite palpable. Yeah. And, and I'm grateful for that. Uh, just a few logistic things before we end up. Please keep in mind, if you enjoyed this, we do this the last Friday of every month. We do a CDO Matters Live. Sometimes it's just me. Sometimes it's me with engaging guests like Eric. 
Uh, don't forget to check out our content on YouTube, on prophecy.com. Uh, we do the CDM Matters Live. It's posted to all the podcast providers of your choice. You name it, we're out there as well. We've got great guests. We talk to CDOs, data leaders, business leaders about their biggest challenges. Eric, thank you so much. It's, it's been awesome to, to talk with you. Really appreciate you taking an hour out of your busy day. Happy holidays. Yeah, likewise. Thanks for having me. I enjoyed the chat. And uh, anytime you want to call and nerd out on AI and data management, you know I'm up for it. Be careful what you ask for. Thanks, everybody, <laughs> for tuning in. We will see any, everybody again sometime very soon on the next CDO Matters Live. Thanks, all. Bye for now. Thank you so much. Bye-bye.